You are listening to the podcast, Talking Points About Perianesthesia Nursing. I am your host, Connie Hardy-Tabbitt, member and past president. We'll be talking about the importance of knowledgeable and compassionate perianesthesia nursing care, serving nursing practices in all phases of pre-anesthesia and post-anesthesia care, ambulatory surgery, and pain management. In other words, all things related to any talking point advocating our care before, during, and after all procedures, anesthesia, and analgesia. Our podcast will feature interviews with experts in the field, inspiring stories, tips, resources, and insights on the ever-changing world of perianesthesia nursing. Tune in to stay informed and help ensure excellent perianesthesia patient care. Let's begin. Join me for a mindful moment. Let's take a brief moment to mindfully collaborate before content. Did you know the physiological sign was discovered in 1930? Humans sigh spontaneously approximately every five minutes when awake, asleep, and while crying. The science for physiological sighing breathwork supports and reboots your brain and body. It offers a reward of rebalancing and regulating your stability. Physiological sighing pattern includes two short inhales followed by a longer exhale. Let's do three rounds together. Inhale for two short counts, one, two, Exhale for six counts. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Second round. Inhale for two short breaths. One, two. Longer exhale. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Last round. Put your hand on your heart. Inhale for two short breaths. One, two. Longer exhale. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Your alveoli and your lungs are reinflated, and this technique removes carbon dioxide. The longer exhale triggers heart sensors to slow your heart rate, and the results are aimed at fostering a sense of peace and well-being with relaxation. With gratitude from me to you, namaste. This episode is the inaugural podcast for the American Society of Perianesthesia Nurses, ASPAN. Today, I am joined by a distinguished guest and friend, Dr. Peggy McNeil. She is a member, past ASPAN, Director for Clinical Inquiry from 2019 to 2023. Welcome and thank you for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners today. Hi, Bonnie. I'm so glad to be here and join you and, and especially to talk about capnography, which I know you're really passionate about. We kind of stumbled upon this. So a little background. As I was contemplating perianesthesia topic, my first thoughts were advocating for capnography and tidal CO2. And then the thought process continued and led me to invite my clinical inquiry colleague, Peggy. So today we are here to discuss all things capnography. Peggy, if you want to introduce yourself... And your um, credentials. Okay. So, as you said, I was the director for clinical inquiry for four years. I just gave that up this spring. And in my day job, I'm the director of nursing quality professional practice. And 
the neuroscientist at Frederick Health, which is just north of D.C. So I work in a community hospital. And I, prior to my current job, I was the perianesthesia clinical nurse specialist. So that's my master's preparation as an advanced practice nurse. When we, in our PACU, were looking at new equipment, I had the opportunity to advocate for new monitors that included capnography because they do feel very passionate about how capnography gives us more information about how to detect potential complications in our patients. That's me. I know you have a lot of credentials and I'm proud to do some of the work that I've done with you. So Peggy and myself completed a week-long JBI systematic review course in 2019. That seems so long ago, doesn't it? That like before COVID-19. Pre-COVID, yeah. (laughs) And as contributing partners, we identified catenography as a gap in periesthesia nursing practices and want to review the literature as a systematic review. At the completion of our clinical inquiry, we wrote and published a peer-reviewed article in the Journal of Perianesthesia Nurses, or known as JOPAN, in 2022. And the title is called The Effectiveness of Capnography Versus Pulse Oximetry in Detecting Respiratory Adverse Events in the Post-Anesthesia Care Unit, or PACU, a Narrative Review and Synthesis. And woefully, catenography did not get adopted by other practices when it was promoted for procedural sedation. Join us and listen and learn about entitled cap- carbon dioxide, also known as catenography monitoring. So can I just interject and speak a little bit about the process for the systematic review that we did? Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know... Daphne Standard, Dr. Standard, and I did a talk at the last ASPAN conference about systematic reviews. And it's just important to know that, you know, you start from a PICO question. So you're looking at your population, the intervention, comparison, outcomes, and sometimes time. And that was, Dave, we used that framework to guide our search in the literature. And so this isn't you know, a haphazard approach. This is a scientific research approach to looking for evidence. But we were passionate about the topic and wanted to see what was out there specific to PACU. So. (laughs) Excellent. So airway management and respiratory assessment are two essential nursing skills and interventions needed for perianesthesia nursing. A little thing that, something that needs to get defined along with the science, because you have to know the difference and why is this important and why, why did procedural sedation adopt this and why are we slow to the party? Three important terms that need to be easily defined. What is oxygenation, ventilation, and respirations? Do you want to explain oxygenation? Oh, Sure. So oxygenation represents the oxygen dissolved in the plasma, but also what is bound to hemoglobin in the blood. But how much oxygen the blood is carrying is actually oxygenation. And it's one part of the respiratory cycle or concepts. Oxygen gets transported by hemoglobin that is part of the red blood cells and it goes to the body's organs and cells, and 
oxygen delivery, oxygenation is critical for the functions of cells and tissues. And when we look at how we monitor them, you know, the I guess the gold standard in the past would have been a blood gas, and we'd look at the PaO2 on the blood gas. But today we look at oxygenation in the PACU via the pulse oximetry monitor. And so we look at saturation of oxygen onto the hemoglobin, and hopefully it's 94% or above. And I would say that it, the hemoglobin that's present, that's saturated, as long as you don't have like carbon monoxide or something else bumping the oxygen off the hemoglobin, it doesn't speak to, when we look at this, we, it doesn't speak to the delivery of oxygen and it doesn't speak to the amount of hemoglobin that is there. What you're looking at when you look at the pulse oximetry reading is what you have, how saturated it is. But we do want it to be in the high 90s. And there's a lot of bias along with cat oxygenation as well. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So what are ventilations? The mechanical process of exchanging oxygen into the lungs and then that exhaled carbon dioxide, which is usually considered acidic out of the lungs because of the process of breathing, either spontaneously or by a ventilator. And the way I would think of ventilations is def definitely just like a ventilator, that machine looking for chest rise and fall that inhalation and exhalation actions of each breath. You're looking at the assessment of that chest movement matching a rise and a fall to indicate, hopefully, adequate respiratory rate and effort. Ventilation is also an action of the in and out movement of each breath that is taking place. Ventilations are all about oxygen and carbon dioxide and the measurement. And you can't get that measurement of carbon dioxide with a pulse oximetry or oxygenation. Capnography is also known as end tidal carbon dioxide measurements from the ventilation. Hopefully that will make sense. And yeah. And then, Peggy, do you want to do what is respirations? So, oh, go ahead, Peggy. When, so putting both of these together, respiration is that whole cycle, that whole activity of you know, the body breathing with ventilation and oxygenation and both of those physiological activities combined keep the cells alive. CO2 gets blown off, O2 is taken up, and we do this repeatedly over and over. And we can measure the components of respiration in the PACU. I love your explanation there. And nursing respiratory assessments, that's what we do routinely. We assess in the pre-op, and then they go to the OR, and then they're going to tell us what's going on, and then they come to the PACU, and then we're going to continue that assessment. So that's one important element. And we're assessing the breathing exchange and inhale and exhalation that we've already talked about. But there's an emphasis on these three distinct definitions, and we hope that you have a greater understanding when you're throwing out these words, and it's not just cannot be solely done by pulse oximetry. This takes us to the next concept. What is capnography? Peggy, do you want to chat about that? Right, and you've already talked quite a quite a bit about this, but it's also known as entitled CO2, pet CO2, entitled CO2. Capnography kit is a reliable monitoring measurement of exhaled car carbon dioxide. 
And it allows for a rapid, it, it's almost instantaneous to get the, the measure. And it's a waveform as well as a number, but it's real time so that you can actually see if your patient is adequately ventilating. And it allows us with the waveform and with the numbers, which the normal values are 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury for CO2. It correlates with what you would see on CO2 in a blood gas, in an arterial blood gas. But it allows us to recognize way earlier than pulse ox does apnea, hypoxemia, actually apnea, respiratory issues, bronchospasm, anything that looks like hypoventilation. So when... When somebody is actually showing hypoxemia on your pulse ox, if you don't have end title, you're missing the boat because they probably showed hypoventilation first. So adnea, hypercapnia, bradypnea, so slow breathing, opioid-induced respiratory depression, so less expansion of the lungs. So anything that's hypoventilation is detected by capnography. And so obviously, you know, our brand and bonner, you know, why we exist is to monitor patients after sedation or general anesthesia, because those are the complications that, you know, you first need to monitor for. I love that. And the literature also supports that we should be doing using entitled CO2 if your patient has been diagnosed or they're a high risk of obstructive sleep apnea, OSA, and 90% of the population has is undiagnosed. If you're giving an intravenous opioid, if they have any patient-controlled analgesia, such as an epidural or the PCEA or, or PCA, those are four things that I really need to be monitored. When I teach a class in my work environment and I'm asking, do your patient getting this? What are these effects of all the medicine? that we're giving them. They're all opioid-induced respiratory depression. So why wouldn't you want to be monitoring? And I ask them, you know, do your patients snore? And they laugh. And I'm like, snoring is not a good thing. So our patients are at risk. So obviously, we, not, we want to have a safety net. And really, capnography is a safety net for nursing assessments, but also for the patient. We want them to have better outcomes. Peggy, what does the, the science say about capnography and pulse oximetry that you've researched. And I know you've gone to some of the components and, and really sharing the differences of why between pulse oximetry and capnography, because there's a big disconnect. So how do we connect those dots for people who are listening? Yeah. And so when we, when we did our literature review and we used our PICO question to find what was out there specific to the PACU, in the end, there was only four articles that we could actually use. There was a lot on pulse oximetry. There was a lot on capnography in sedation, using it for procedural sedation and in the emergency department. But that wasn't, obviously, and that's not what we were interested in specifically. And so in the end, we only found one randomized controlled trial that actually looked at the effects of using capnography to help identify adverse respiratory events. And the other three studies were observational. 
two of the four were in pediatric populations. And I will say the last time I spoke about this, that it resonated with the audience that, in fact, undetected adverse respiratory events in pediatric patients are a big problem. And that's what these two articles showed, that there was way more complications, potential complications, hypoventilation, apnea, that then the pulse oximeter alone detected. And that was true with the adults as well. So for both the children and adults, capnography detected respiratory adverse events much earlier and more more often than pulse oximetry. The events that were detected included opioid-induced respiratory depression, like Connie already spoke about, hypoventilation, hypercapnia, apnea, and bradypnea. And it showed that when the nurses were blinded to capnography, they didn't detect the adverse events until the patient was hypoxic, which takes a while to happen. So pulse oximetry alone did not help detect these potential complications or these adverse events. So after we finished our review with those four articles, I also looked at another, I found another article. I keep, I'm interested in, I keep trying to look at the literature on this. There was another study where nurses in the PACU were responsible for extubating patients, either, you know, removing the LMA or an ET tube. And in the, in those patients, if, if the nurse could see capnography, they waited until the patient had CO2 levels that were within normal limits, and then they would extubate. But if they could just use pulse oximetry, so their normal practice and their normal monitoring, patients got extubated when they were retaining and they weren't ventilating enough. And they just didn't know that that was happening. And capnography just gave them an additional tool, more knowledge, so that they could better take care of their patients. So that was an interesting study. And so they they continued to monitor until the patients actually had CO2 within normal limits. And the other outcomes, like a longer length of stay or anything else that you might be interested in, didn't change. So it wasn't like the only thing that changed was the patient was stayed intubated a little bit longer as appropriate. The other parameters, like they weren't there any longer and they didn't have anything else that impacted the, you know, the process and the function of care and for the patient. So, so capnography was a useful tool for them. And the way I said, I guess I would, go ahead. No, I I was just going to interject just for a minute that I really see capnography as advocacy for a patient is directly advocating. And that's what nurses want to do. So, you know, of course, if you don't have this tool, then you really can't advocate for it. But once you start using it and you get comfortable with it, you are competent with it, it is immediate on the better outcomes and just monitoring and making the best choices for the patient, clinical practice choices. So, And I guess I would, I would just add at the end of that, you know, I've been a nurse for a, re- a really long time. Like, it's almost 40 years and I can't even... Get I can't, like, wrap my head around. But, and, you know, when I first started nursing in a critical care area, we didn't have pulse oximetry. So, and so, you know, it's over 30 years we've been using pulse oximetry. But, and, you know, we hang our hat on this when, in fact, it has limitations, right? So, 
you know, if anybody's, you know, got a critical care background and they've done a apnea test and used used CO2 and pulse oximetry, like the patient that has, you know, you're working them up for brain death, in fact, they'll stay oxygenated for a long time when their CO2 is above 100. Their pulse ox doesn't drop. So, you know, we don't want to see that in our post-op patients. And then recent research related to COVID shows has shown that that occult hypoxia has has been seen like pulse oximetry isn't as reliable in patients with black and brown skin. And so occult hypoxia where the blood gas is showing that that are hypoxic, but the pulse ox is not. And so patients have had delayed care for an hour or more where it wasn't recognized that they had hypoxia. And the other thing is the lower the number goes, the less reliable it is. So when you need it to be a really accurate reflection of what is happen- happening to your patient. In fact, that's when it's the least reliable. So like we've embraced this for a really long time. We didn't have a lot of other opportunities. Nobody wants to stick anybody for a blood gas in the pack every 10 minutes. But, I, you know, it's important to note that this is not a perfect monitor and it never has been. And so having pulse oximetry and capnography gives us way more information so that we can do better by our patients. As in, And as Connie said, you know, advocating for what's right for our patients is so important. So you shared a lot of information that we shared in our article and we have learned a lot. We've shared talks to other components and it's still a secret. So this is a secret that I'm so proud that this is the we're sharing this with everybody and you have that opportunity to listen to your in your car or advocate at your workplace. Is there anything else that we need to add on this before we close out? I don't think so. I think that it, you know, you've, you've made advocacy your platform when you were president of Aspen and, you know, this is, you know, sometimes I think nurses you know, they advocate for patients every day. You advocate when your patient needs better pain management. You advocate when they need a different medication or there's a complication. And so this is just one more opportunity to advocate for what we know will help us better care for patients. And so I really appreciate collaborating with you because you never forget that patients and families are at the center of what we do. And so, yeah, I love you. Oh, I love you back. Well, in closing, <laughs> warms my heart. I was ch- talking about some when we're passionate about topics that are, like you said, adv- advocating. So in closing, the risks and costs versus patient safety should not be a deterrent for advocating monitoring equipment to prevent negative patient outcomes. Money should not be an issue. Advocating best nursing practices while understanding the rationale is an important nursing pillar of advocacy, as we've mentioned once or twice before. The evidence has been around. Now is the time to stop ignoring the benefits of capnography. One point together is we're promoting or advocating for capnography and pulse oximetry together. They are, you need that collaboration. We're not saying one is better than the other. We're saying use them in combination. 
So thank you for listening and we appreciate it. Thank you. Our purposeful intent is to expose you to evidence that will then support your nursing practices and guide you to safer and excellent nursing care. Take care as you advocate like someone's life depends on it, because it does, for both you and your patients.